Te Vasudevaya. Haribol. So, um, <clears throat> the title of the talk tonight is Selling the Lie. And a lot of people are not very familiar with the term. If you look it up in the dictionary, um, they say it's an informal way of stating to cheat or to deceive. And of course, they use the lie rather than a lie because it's not like just the particular thing that's been said, but this act of actually seeking to influence people through um, deception or through some form of cheating. And, uh, a, you know, a person may ask, well, why are we discussing that? And what's that got to do with me and my life? And particularly if I am attempting to live a more spiritually oriented life, you know, what's, what's the big, what's the deal with that? Why is this something that, you know, is of any interest to me? Well, <clears throat> fundamentally, it deals with the question of truth. How, when people cannot, cannot agree on what is true, or if untruth is being promoted as being truth, it's going to lend to a quite massive distortion of people's consciousness. And what it does is it really begins to affect the nature of my relationships and connections with other people, with the world in which we live. And of course, it's going to, and it can radically impact my own perceptions of myself. And so having some sort of objective reality is actually really, really important for anyone that's interested in the, the spiritual journey. So the fact that it's become so widely utilized, this um, selling the lie, you know, this attempt to deceive or mislead or create certain types of consciousness that become pervasive in society. Just like, for instance, you know, we've mentioned before um, the Tristan, what was his name? Can't remember. 
the guy that used to be the he he worked as an ethicist for in in Google design eth- ethicists to make sure that their products of Google were ethical and he ended up leaving the company and has become quite a critic he played a major role at least in terms of his appearance in that um, famous documentary, I can't remember what it was called. Mm. You remember no, the one about the yeah. Anyway, it was a huh? social dilemma. Social dilemma. But in in his in in that. Um, documentary and in his testimony before U.S. Congress when he spoke about the business model of big tech, how it really seeks to polarize people, to outrage people, to have them become both addicted and performative. And that word performative is, is an important word because performative means when I'm behaving in a certain manner, trying to elicit a certain response from others. And so we can see, of course, the whole selfie thing is about this, where everybody wants to put out a positive and the best possible, the most attractive image of themselves, or if they're in the jackass kind of category, they're going to do the thing that's the most shocking in order to get people's attention. But fundamentally, at, at the heart of things, what people are doing is presenting a manipulated version of themselves and who they are. And what has happened over time is people start buying into these performative images, you know, the the way in which people are behaving and acting and in order to get certain responses. It's not often spontaneous or, or natural at all. And so it becomes, you know, you have this whole model that's been developed that has had a shocking effect and impact on the world, on people's mental health. And so a lot of it is based on deception. Even the way you get fed videos, it's highly manipulative. It's not, you know, just people choosing to do things. And it very much falls into the category of something that is quite Machiavellian, this idea of the end justifies the means. And for those that are not too familiar with that, you know, the means means what you say and do, the things that you employ to get to a certain end. 
And it's all about getting to that end. How you get there is not important at all. Um, Machiavelli was an Italian, um, he was uh, quite intellectual. And he wrote a book uh, called The Prince. And there he described all the black arts of manipulating the public and other political adversaries in, all, in order to be able to get a certain outcome. And if you look up the, the um, definition of uh, Machiavellian, it, um, I'll just read a couple I've got here. Being or acting in accordance with the principles of government in which political expediency is placed above morality and the use of craft, meaning craftiness, of craft and deceit to maintain the authority and carry out the policies of a ruler is described as Machiavellian. So where you, you say and do whatever needs to be done to produce an outcome, and you don't consider whether that was the right thing to do, whether it was moral or correct to mislead people, you are simply satisfied with the outcome. And the effect that it has on others is, is irrelevant. And another definition is it means to be characterized as subtle or unscrupulously cunning deception, expediency, or dishonesty. So, you know, it's first point is this idea has been around since, you know, the, the Middle Ages. It's always been employed by those seeking power. But the general population was often quite insulated. I mean, it's not like people, you know, in the 1500s sat around watching television or listening to the radio. You, you lived in a rural community or a small village or town, or there weren't that many large cities. There weren't many urban dwellers. And you always received news about things, you know, often long after something had occurred. And people fundamentally were getting on with their life. Of course, we live in a, in a different time now. I think one of the shocking applications of this idea of selling the lie in the name of public good, we see in the 1930s, um, one of the most prominent economists of that era, his name was um, uh, John Maynard Keynes. And he was renowned because of, he had an enormous effect on the way economies were going to develop. So he, he had put forward 
um, an, an idea. And I'll just give you a little um, preamble into it. Then I'll probably see if we can put up a slide on the screen as I read one of his other quotes. But he, um, he was sort of like distressed by these economic cycles that were happening, boom and bust, where things would be all going wonderfully and then things would fall apart. And the general population was like really struggled. Um, up at, until the 1930s, you know, a, a sizable portion of the population lived in quite what we would consider today to be quite impoverished in many ways. And so he began to speculate about the economic possibilities for our grandchildren, as he put it. And he sort of speculated that... Um, the day may not be far, very far off when everybody would be rich. And he proposed that if we could really develop the economy and people had greater opportunity to earn money, then everybody could become wealthy and live much better lives. At least this was the idea. And what he proposed was the need to stimulate avarice. Avarice is a, is a word that's never used now. And it basically means the lust for money, you know, the, the greed for money. So he promoted that people need to be stimulated to be avaricious and they need to be greedy and they need to envy what others have and desire to have it too. And if people were more like this, then everybody would be working much harder. And of course, the question at the time was, you know, well, is this a cool thing to do? Because isn't that going to have a corrupting influence on people when they become, when they buy into this? So his response to it was as follows. For at least another hundred years, we must pretend to ourselves and to everyone that fair is foul and foul is fair. For foul is useful and fair is not. Avarice and usury and precaution must be our gods for a little longer still. For only they can lead us out of the tunnel of economic necessity into daylight. And then concluding, he said, we shall then, he said, once more value ends above means and prefer the good to the useful. So, you know, the statement that he made was that 
he said for economic growth, it necessitates that we dispense with that which is fair and adopt that which is foul. <laughs> and these qualities and these behaviors were considered previously foul according to the, you know, the morals of the time. So he said, you know, we must prepare that that foul is fair and fair is foul. We must switch everything on its head. And only then when we worship greed as a god and to do it for a little long, long time longer, that it can lead us out of the tunnel of economic necessity into the daylight. And the daylight, of course, means, you know, to become uh, wealthy. And, and once we're there, we can again value ends above means and prefer that which is good over that which is useful. So that, this was a, a, a pretty startling idea, but it had already grown in popularity. Um, and of course, that was due to the influence of a guy by the name of Eddie Bernays that you've heard me speak of before that the world hardly knows anything about. And he was probably one of the most influential persons in the history, the modern history of the world in the last hundred years. He has done more to shape society in the world and how you are thinking and your value system today has been more shaped by him than perhaps anybody else, and yet he's practically unknown. So he uh, used, he was the nephew of, of, of Sigmund Freud, and he used a lot of the ideas that Freud had developed about how to manipulate the public in general and, and get it Freud's idea was that the public was just actually dangerous and they need to be manipulated to be to create a safe world for us. And if they're just left to their own devices, there's going to be chaos and riots and you know revolutions and it's going to be bad for everyone. That was his idea. And he developed theories and ideas and techniques that could be used to sort of manipulate the general public. Eddie Bernays used those and became employed by um, the captains of industry to develop the whole modern approach to advertising. When he first practiced his craft, he was an advisor to a US president, Woodrow Wilson, they called this particular craft propaganda. But then after World War I, propaganda became a bad word because of the way apparently the Germans utilized it. And so looking for another way to describe what he was doing, he decided in abandoning the term propaganda, he developed the term public relations. 
And so, of course, today everybody thinks, oh, public relations, that's harmless and it's a good thing. And it's kind of like, you know, it's utilized by businesses and governments and people that want to do good for the world, public relations. But actually, it's just a word that was coined to replace propaganda. And so he set about utilizing these different techniques of, of Freud. One of the things that this new... I hesitate to call it an industry, but I, that's how people often refer to things now. This new industry, this group of people, the public relations and advertising people, quickly seized upon this idea that, and they, un they came to understand, everybody is fundamentally feeling some emptiness in their life. Doesn't matter how much they've got going on, what they have acquired, doesn't matter where they are on the economic spectrum, everybody is feeling like there's something lacking in their life. There's a certain emptiness inside. And having identified that, they set about trying to associate products and experiences with filling up that emptiness. And so they started making promises. And these promises were subtle, but actually very corrosive. And of course, one of my favorite people to speak about was, was Coca-Cola. They came out with a campaign a few decades ago not that long, about 35 years ago, where the slogan was, Coke is it. Coke is it. You know, and then they had this whole jingle and Coke is it. And it's kind of like, is it? What is the it? And of course, what it is, is this promise that if you drink Coke, that emptiness inside will be removed. It is the thing that you've actually, you know, been seeking. And of course, in more recent times, you know, they come up with a line, open happiness. And you've got the polar bears and they pop the cap off the Coke bottle and all the bubbles of happiness come out. And it's kind of like, you know, that's, that's a pretty massive misrepresentation that you are going to actually find happiness and completeness just by popping the top off a bottle of Coke. But this, and I'm just using this as an example, I'm not saying that they're the only one, everybody is doing it. This conscious misrepresentation, selling the lie that if that my product that the thing I'm offering you will make your life complete, it will make you happier, it will 
take away the loneliness and the emptiness. It will fill you up. It, they offer perfection on, on, in a very subtle but persuasive way. I was always quite dazzled by the boldness of a cigarette company in Asia who had an English jingle. And, <laughs> you know, as part of that jingle, they actually came out and, and said it. At last, you have found what you've been looking for in hope, the luxury cigarette. You know, they... They, they named the brand Hope. And the promise was that, and the, the recognition that everybody's looking for something and the promise that this, this is it. So, you know, it's all built on this premise, this idea that we will uh, transform ourselves every time we buy one of these new promises. Everybody, all the products are making a promise. They're offering and making a promise. So you get this. And if I buy that, somehow I will become transformed. So, you know, this became like massively pervasive in, in advertising where people are, are actually misrepresenting and telling a lie. But it's become so widely embraced and accepted that nobody bats an eye. And so we're just like constantly bombarded with falsity, with falsehoods and misrepresentation. And it has an amazingly corrosive effect on the general population. It's like we've become desensitized to truth. And that is having, I feel, a horrible effect on, on people's happiness, on their the development of, of purpose in their life. So as, as part of... of um, the development of advertising, they, Eddie Bernays was the first one to do this, but they developed this whole thing of the, the focus groups where you get average people that you want to market to. You know, they'll have a, a, a certain, within a certain age group, an economic part of society and everything. You get them in a room and you expose them to a new product and new types of words. And people are told, you know, just whatever comes to mind, tell me what you think when you saw that package. Tell me what you think when you smelled that or when you tasted that or when you heard this. What, what effect did it have on you? And the focus groups, of course, they would have cameras in there, but there was often a two-way mirror and there'd be people sitting back there listening, you know, to the conversations that were going on. And what they were doing were looking for little triggers, things that you could throw out and they would trigger a response in people. It was very highly manipulative. 
So we saw that that tool gradually made its way into politics. And there were kind of like two things going on in, in at least in my perception of things. There were two things going on. One was the use of that tool to really see what was going to affect and influence people. And the, this thing that came out of the 70s, the spin doctor. The spin doctor wasn't a DJ. <laughs> As somebody might think, you know, no, a spin doctor was a, a, they, they were people that taught politicians how to use a form of deception to influence people to support them. And, and the way um, a spin doctor is, you know, formally defined. A, a person who, and, and it's most common, they say in the definition in political situation, but a person who represents in a way that is likely to help one side and hurt the other. Represent meaning that they put forward a dialogue they try to frame things. Another definition is a person such as a political aide whose job involves trying to control the way something such as an important event is described to the public in order to influence what people think about it. So they try to influence how something is going to be understood and they gave a little example in one dictionary of, of how you would use the word spin doctor. The spin doctors from both sides were already declaring victory for their candidates as soon as the debate ended. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, you've got two political opponents and they both have a debate then regardless of how well or badly one of the candidates did, their publicists are immediately declaring the victory of their candidate in the debate. And in doing it, they will try to focus on things and present things in a certain way to make it look like their candidate won, even if they actually didn't. So, um, you know, this is blatant deception that now became widely embraced in the political arena. And today it has become so chronically bad that it is not just the politicians that have been fundamentally dishonest when, most of the time when they speak or quite often when they speak, but you have um, people within the media who have widely embraced political viewpoints and the spin one particular party is going to be putting on things. 
there was a time not that long ago when most, most of the newspapers and the news outlets objectively reported the news. And then they used to have these things called opinion columns, where somebody actually now gave their opinion about something that's happening in the news. Now, you know, in most developed countries, not just developed, even undeveloped countries, we see that the media has become deeply involved in partisan politics, taking one side and presenting often untruths and falsities or distortions of truth over and above just, you know, factually presenting the, the things, the, the reality of things. And this is having an enormous effect on, on the public at large. So as I mentioned, you know, there was this using the focus groups that were used in advertising to develop products and campaigns you know, was now used in politics. It was first used in a broad way in America um, in the campaign of, of Bill Clinton. So this is quite a long time ago. And what they found out, they want emotional triggers. When you use a specific word, it has an emotional response from people. And they know the emotional response that they want. And so they come up with a list of words that sort of trigger this response in people. And then people give a talk that's actually not about a political philosophy or a philosophy of government or how they will govern, but it's just throwing out all these words to create a response that people are going to vote for you because they heard you use these kind of words that triggered this kind of response. And many people may think that that's fine, but the reality is it's incredibly um, manipulative. And it's all about, you know, the end over the means. The means justify the end. And so this use of these buzzwords, as they used to call them. But fundamentally, it's about distorting and misrepresenting the truth. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to watch politicians whenever they're interviewed. And if you look at it carefully, they, are, they seem utterly unable because they are unwilling to answer questions truthfully and honestly. Everything is couched in certain kinds of language to give an impression, but people don't want to honestly answer things. There was a famous <laughs> um, thing that occurred in, in, in the presidency of Bill Clinton when um, he was accused of engaging in, in um, fundamentally illicit sexual activity um, with 
a young woman in in the in the White House in the Oval Office. I mean, the things that went down were kind of really mind-boggling. And when he was accused of this, his lawyers came out and completely denied. And then he came out and completely denied. And he said, I never had sex with that woman, looking into the camera very earnestly. And of course, that turned out to be a massive lie. I mean, a huge lie. And it led to an impeachment. And during the impeachment, um, he was, Bill Clinton was, was questioned. And the, the, he was questioned about a statement that his lawyers made. And I will just read, the, the, and this is actually verbatim from the text. The statement that there was no sex of any kind in any manner, shape, or form with President Clinton was an utterly false statement. Is that correct? So asking Bill Clinton, is that correct? And his response was, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. <laughs> is that correct? It depends on the, what the meaning of the word is, is. And then he tried to, you know, stumble through it and explain away, you know, if is means is and never has been, that is not, uh, that is one thing. And it's just like, you know, it's just playing with words. But this was emblematic of what had happened in the world. Of course, what's happened now after, you know, 30 years of this, there has been this massive spillover into, into society. And the messaging that people are receiving about life is, is so utterly distorted. And what we're oftenly, often seeing now, commonly seeing, is people have come to this point where they mistake believing for knowing. If you believe something, it's like that's the same as you know it, meaning it, it, it's true. And so we, we see this um, selling the lie, how it's being played out often unconsciously, uh, worldwide almost. One of the areas where we see it was with what used to be called political correctness. And then that sort of became more transformed into what's been called the cancel culture, where so many false narratives have been put forward. And we see it in America where, you know, the accusations of racism, the pervasiveness of racism, and the willingness to label people as Nazis or fascists or racists or you know, when, 
we would never have used this type of, of language before. You know, up until the 70s, 80s, the 90s, everybody embraced the idea that racism was bad. But now it's become commonly accepted that racism is good if it is reverse racism, where an, a, a community that may have been disadvantaged previously now becomes the ones to promote um, racism, to try and offset, as it were, the damage that was done previously. You've got these things like, you know, women have suffered badly from men, not all men and not all women. And then you had this whole, you know, in the beginning of the Me Too movement, which was completely understandable how it could come about. But then this phrase, believe all women, you know, and this was being chanted in the streets and promoted in media. And it's just like, what? <laughs> Why should you believe somebody? just on the basis of, of having a certain type of body. That's sort of like, you know, that's where we're drifting into areas of, of that, that lead to really bad outcomes. Recently, you know, I, I saw um, friends in, in Australia when there was a campaign to legalize um, gay marriage. And I have zero comment on, on that issue at all, zero comment. But they, I saw people widely embracing this line, you should be able to marry whoever you love. And that was like promoting everybody's like, yeah, yeah, you should be able to marry whoever you want to love. And people don't see that these kind of phrases have been utilized to manipulate and to get certain outcomes. But if you look at them logically, these are really dangerous. What happens if some creepy old guy says that he is in love with his six-year-old neighbor. And the, the six-year-old child also says that they are in love with a creepy old guy next door. Should they be able to marry? Because shouldn't you be able to marry whoever you love? You know, there was one guy I read about. He said that he was in love with his Rottweilers. And his sister ended up turning him into the police because he was on a daily basis having sex with his Rottweilers. And she felt that it was animal cruelty. But maybe the dogs love him and maybe he loves them. So shouldn't you be able to marry whoever you love? I mean, I, I can start 
going down this road and showing how this you, the use of this terminology is potentially really dangerous. But we have become victimized by emotional language that is crafted to produce certain outcomes. And we're not seeing that fact and we're kind of like oblivious to how it is affecting and, and influencing us. You know, another thing that sort of like really baffles me is there's a movement in America and something similar in Europe, but in America um, called Antifa. And it's short for anti-fascist. But then you look at how these people are behaving. You know, when they had meetings of the World Bank and the World Economic Forum in America, all these people show up dressed in black, all, all black, including covering their faces. And then they set about attacking the police, destroying smashing windows on offices and buildings and setting fire to things. And it's kind of like, and they're calling themselves anti-fascists. Yet this is exactly the way in which Hitler and Mussolini rose to power using what they had, the brown shirts, and in Italy, the black shirts, where you had these groups of people wearing these uniforms and then just going out terrorizing and bullying people to enforce a political ideology. And they're doing it in the name of anti-fascism, yet their entire operation is exactly how the fascists operated so, you know, it, it, this, this whole thing that's going on is really affecting people in, in many unfortunate ways. And there is actually a very dark side to it that, you know, political manipulators long time ago came up with the phrase, control the language and you control the narrative. And so the, the use of language became really important because then you can bring about transformation. So there's a very recent thing that happened in, in America that I, you know, really exemplifies things. Um, you've, and many people may not know this, you've got two sides to the debate on pedophilia. Um, there are people, including psychologists, who promote the idea that pedophilia, that having a loving relationship between an adult and a little child can be a very healthy thing. This idea was became widely supported and promoted after the Second World War in Germany amongst psychologists there. And the horror stories that have come out of it and the damage to children has been just really amazing. But in, in this particular case, 
there was a, a teacher, a 53-year-old woman in, in Texas who was fired after somebody videoed her making a statement. The, what's happened now is some people were saying, well, she didn't actually mean it. She was just using this as an example of what some people are saying. So whether she actually meant it, and it sounded like she meant it on the thing, on the video, um, she was chastising um, somebody in, in the class um, where she, the, the kid in the class had referred to a pedophile and she said that that was a derogatory term. She said, she, and this is her words, stop calling them that. You're not allowed to label people like that. Stop it, Diego. You're not going to call them that. And then she goes on to instruct, we're going to call them MAPS, M-A-P-S, Minor attracted persons. So don't judge people just because they want to have sex with a five-year-old. <laughs> and it's just like, oh my God, what, what's happening to us? What's happening to our world? What's happening to our society where people are going to be so manipulative with language to try and change a narrative so people's moral values, their ethics become un undermined by the use of, of actually what is emotionally charged language. And it's used to like subtly um, force someone or bully someone to change their, their, their values. So, of course, the effects can be very far-reaching. This is such a massive topic. And I, even though we've been speaking here for a while, we've barely scratched the surface of how troubling this tendency is. If a person... Um, I mean, I, I had other things I was going to talk on, but it was sort of like we've, we've run out of time here. You know, people have sort of mixed up um, truth and being truthful. In this idea of, of we mistake believing something for knowing it. But these are two different things. A person can hold a view that is actually not the truth, but they hold it so ardently and speaking about it, they, they can be said to be speaking truthfully. But anyway, that's, this is a big subject. We're not going to deal with that. So we, we can all 
you know, or we all do in different ways become victims of distortion of truth and, and manipulation. And the main victim, of course, is, is the truth itself. We understand that truth is not relative. It's not dependent upon what I believe or what I wish to be true. There needs to be some form of objective reality. And when somebody puts forward something that is said to be true, there has to be a correspondence with that and some independently verifiable reality. Our understanding, of course, is the truth is always true. It's not dependent upon what I believe or what I wish to be true. If we cannot accept that there is really an objective reality and we think instead that we can, with our imagination, create our own truth, then we are really in crisis as a society. And of course, that's become a common idea. People say, well, that's your truth. And it's kind of like, okay, everybody can have their own truth. And of course, we understand from a spiritual perspective, the big underlying lie is the false narrative that's put forward by the theory of materialism, that all I am is this body and this mind, that there is no higher spiritual reality. So I'll read a little verse um, from the Bhagavad Gita that um, specifically addresses that point. Those who are seers of the truth have concluded that of the non-existence, meaning the material body, there is no endurance. And of the eternal, meaning the soul, there is no change. This they have concluded by studying the nature of both. So, you know, perhaps you can understand from me reading that and putting that forward why we are actually deeply concerned about the truth. If you want to actually become happy, if you want to find, as I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, you know, your own safe space, having a home, if you want to experience actual spiritual love, then it is all premised upon recognizing the reality that I am an eternal spiritual being, that this constantly changing body is not me. And if I focus all of my efforts and time in simply trying to satisfy the different desires that are arising in my mind, that are manifesting from my body, I will always feel unfulfilled as the advertisers recognized many, many decades ago, that emptiness that we feel, 
because material activity does not touch us in the core of our being. So in the Vedic culture, you know, from the point of view of the yogis, people were very discriminating about who to listen to. Just because somebody has an opinion, not all opinions are equal. It depends on the value of those opinions and the outcome, the result of following the opinions. In, in the older system that was practiced in, in the Vedic culture, before listening to someone, I should first evaluate what is the character of this person? What is their value system? What is driving them? And after evaluating that, then I can consider whether listening to their opinion or what they have to say is going to be of value to me and and of interest. So, you know, this is quite a, a huge subject and I don't know if probably a lot of people get lost in, in hearing this and, you know, it's, it's not, probably it's not going to be a very popular subject in terms of, you know, like this big aha moments. But I certainly hope that people will at some time stumble across this and think about it in relation to our own lives and what it is that we hold dear and important. And whether, and the importance of this on the spiritual journey, which is the journey of truth, as they say in, in the biblical quote, and the truth shall set you free. This is actually true. That truth does free people, whereas the opposite is also true. That lies, deception, distortion, enslave us and bind us to unhappiness. So how we operate as a society, how we deal with truth is, is critical importance to our well-being as a society, as, as an individual, to how we are dealing with the planet. So with that, I thank you very, very much for giving me the opportunity to share this with you. We will... Um, do a, a kirtan. I will sing um, Haribo Nitaigor, and then I may also sing um, the mantra Gopala Govindarama Madana Mohana. Haribo, 
Thank you very, very much for joining us and um, hope to see you next week. Haribo.